Section 11 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6, The Excommunicate Crusader, Part 1. All Christendom stood amazed at the spectacle of an excommunicated emperor leading a crusade into the Holy Land against the expressed commands of the Pope. It was an affront to the papacy such as no monarch had ever dared to offer, a blow at the infallibility of the vicar of Christ, a direct challenge of his position as the earthly mouthpiece of God. A crusade was so essentially a religious enterprise, so firmly identified in men's minds with the service of the church and of the pope as the head of the church. Yet here was a monarch setting forth not merely unblessed but definitely forbidden, and, more cause for amazement still, a monarch who was excommunicated, who was under the awful ban of the church, outcast from the fold of the faithful, and branded with the curse of God. In spite of all Frederick had written, we shall not desist from the service of Christ. If such a man could serve Christ, then the papal pretensions to be the mediator between earth and heaven were vain. The service of God, in fact, was not synonymous with the service of the Pope. The two might even be in direct opposition. Frederick's action aimed a blow at the very foundations of the papal doctrine by proclaiming to the world that the condemnations and commands of the Pope issued from the mouth of man and not from the mouth of God and that the emperor himself could interpret the divine will more truly than the successor of St. Peter. Small wonder that a flame of hatred raged in the soul of Gregory. Meanwhile the crusader was sailing with a fair wind for Palestine. A three weeks' voyage brought him to Cyprus, and after a stay of a month's duration, which he spent in reviving the imperial overlordship of that island, he sailed for Acre, and on the 3rd of September, 1228, first set foot in the Holy Land. Here a large host of pilgrims were assembled. The Teutonic Order, the Templars and the Hospitallers, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, prelates from England and France, and a number of Germans and Lombards all welcomed the long-expected Emperor as the Savior of Israel. It seemed probable that Frederick would have a formidable force to lead to battle against the infidels. In a few days, however, discord in the shape of two Minorite friars arrived in the camp. They brought the news that the emperor was still unabsolved from his excommunication and that he had had the effrontery to sail in direct defiance to the Holy Father's commands. They delivered the papal orders that all faithful Christians were to shun the emperor as one accursed and to leave him to make his way alone to Jerusalem if he persisted in his presumptuous and unrepentant sin. Gregory intended the crusade to fail. He cared nothing for the recovery of those holy places for which Europe had poured out its blood for more than a century. All the Christian in him was obliterated by his virulent anger against the emperor. If the arrival of the papal messengers was not so effective in turning the assembled warriors against their leader as Gregory might have hoped, it at any rate aroused a lively spirit of mutiny. 
some of the crusaders returned to Europe. The Knights Templars and Hospitallers flatly refused to follow the Emperor, and persuaded many waverers to adopt the same attitude. With others, Frederick's popularity stood him in good stead. The Pisans and Genoese remained faithful, and the stout Germans of the Teutonic Order, under their Grand Master Hermann von Salza, were not to be turned from their devotion to their Kaiser. This Hermann was a valuable friend. He was a man of most spotless reputation and high renown, a very perfect knight, and throughout his life he was the trusted comrade and loyal subject of Frederick. Pride at first impelled the emperor to set out for Jaffa, his proposed base, without the support of the disaffected party, rather than attempt to conciliate them. The news of a formidable force of Turkish horse in the neighborhood, however, prompted him to halt and compromise with the malcontents, who were following a day's march behind under the leadership of the Grand Master of the Templars and Hospitallers. These refused to obey any orders issued in the name of an excommunicated emperor, and demanded that such orders should be promulgated in the name of God and the Christian Commonwealth. Frederick yielded to necessity, and the combined force, now consisting of 800 knights and 10,000 infantry, marched to Jaffa, which they reached in the middle of November. The whole army was immediately employed in surrounding the landward side of the port with strong fortifications. The news that the emperor himself, who had dealt with their Saracen kinsfolk in Sicily in so summary a fashion, had at last arrived in their midst to lead the Christian host, spread a wholesome terror throughout the Mohammedan population. His reputation, one rather of personality than of actual martial achievement, had preceded him, and the fact that for more than ten years his coming had been repeatedly rumored and eagerly expected by their Christian enemies served but to heighten the salutary effect of his final advent. Nor was this the only factor that promised well for the success of the crusade. Islam itself was disturbed by internal dissensions. The great Sultan Mohaddin had died the year before. His brother Kamel of Cairo had seized the southern part of his dominions, which included Palestine, but was not entirely free from anxiety as to the secure tenure of his new possessions, since the rightful heir, Mohaddin's son, was supported by a considerable party. There was little fear of a formidable rising, since Kamel's brother, the Sultan of Aleppo, was leagued with him in the laudable task of despoiling their nephew but Islam could not present so united a front as it had done during Mohadin's lifetime. Under such propitious circumstances, great results might have been expected from the crusade, if only the whole Christian force had placed itself unreservedly under the sagacious leadership of the emperor. Dissension, however, aroused by the papal agents, and only temporarily subdued by Frederick's compromise during the march to Jaffa, was raging in the camp, and the news of his adversary's weakness in this respect could not fail to embolden the sultan. To Frederick himself it became obvious that he could not hope to wrest submission from the infidels when the half of his army was plainly hostile to his leadership and might desert his standard at any vigorous assertion of his authority. Fortunately for the cause of Christendom, Frederick had other resources than the mere force of arms, 
which was rendered ineffective by disunion. Just as Richard Coeur de Lyon and Saladin had discarded religious fanaticism and recognized in each other chivalrous qualities which opened the way to an interchange of amenities and friendliness, so Frederick and Camel were mutually attracted by the love of philosophy and learning. Entirely free from the preposterous narrowness which characterized his age, the emperor, while still in his own dominions, had not scrupled to exchange courtesies and correspondence with the rulers of the infidels and with Sultan Kamel in particular. The relations thus commenced had continued when Frederick arrived in Palestine. Soon after reaching Acre, he had sent an embassy to Kamel, bearing costly gifts, and had received an elephant and other eastern animals in return. Once at Jaffa, serious negotiations were opened, which at the same time were accompanied by every evidence of friendship and mutual esteem. Two emirs were constantly passing between the Christian and Islamite leaders. Frederick would propound problems of philosophy and mathematics, which Kamel would answer, and in turn set others for the emperor to solve. Saracen dancing girls were presented to Frederick, who, according to his enemies, paid them more intimate attentions than were becoming in a Christian sovereign. Fanatics on both sides deplored these friendly relations. Both monarchs were accused of betraying their religions, and Frederick was said to have become almost a Saracen himself. The first demands that the emperor made in the interest of Christendom were couched in a high tone. All towns that the Christians had ever held in the East were to be restored to them. Kamel, however, knew well enough that such demands were unwarranted by the emperor's power to enforce them. The disunion in the crusaders' camp had been revealed to him directly by a treacherous attempt of the Templars. Frederick had resolved to make a solitary pilgrimage to the Jordan and to bathe in its holy waters. The Templars wrote to Kamel and informed him of the details of the proposed pilgrimage so that he might capture the emperor and imprison him or put him to death. The sultan, however, refused to take advantage of this perfidious act and sent the Templars' letter to their intended victim. It is probable also that other means were taken to increase the emperor's difficulties. He declared later and offered to prove to all Europe that he had intercepted a letter from the pope to the sultan which warned the infidel leader not to surrender Jerusalem to the emperor. Conscious of the weakness of his position, Frederick lowered his demands. The negotiations dragged on and on, continually frustrated by the quarrelsome spirit of the ecclesiastical party. Finally, his patience gave way. He summoned a council of crusaders and informed them that his money was at an end and that he could not stay much longer in Palestine. Concessions had been promised by the sultan which would restore Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Nazareth, and Sidon, and the villages between these towns to the emperor and to Christendom. It was his intention, he declared, to accept these terms. The grand masters of the Templars and Hospitallers demurred. The patriarch Gerald was not present, and they could agree to nothing which did not meet with his approval. Gerald had already made himself particularly odious, and Frederick replied that he could very well dispense with his sanction. The council broke up with varying emotions, the ecclesiastics bitterly hostile to the treaty, 
the Germans ready to welcome any compact their Kaiser chose to make. Frederick would have no more delay. Plenipotentiaries were exchanged between Emperor and Sultan, and finally, on the 18th of February, 1229, the treaty was completed. It consisted of nine articles of which only a bare outline is preserved. Number one, Jerusalem was to be surrendered to the Emperor. Number two, the Temple of Solomon, which was now the Mosque of Omar, was to be retained by the Saracens. Number three, Christians were to be allowed to enter the temple to pray. Number four, Saracens were to be allowed to make pilgrimages to Bethlehem, which to them also was a holy place. Number five, the Saracens who remained in Jerusalem were to have their own judges for cases in which only themselves were concerned. Number six, the emperor was to give no aid to either Christian or Saracen who should attack the sultan during the truce, which was to last for ten years. Number seven, he was to restrain Christians from attacking the sultan. Number eight, he was bound to aid the sultan in preventing breaches of the truce. Number nine, Tripoli, Antioch, and various other towns outside the kingdom of Jerusalem, which the Christians were attempting to hold, were to remain as they were, and the emperor was to forbid his men to aid them. Thus, after it had remained in infidel hands for more than forty years, the holy city was once again restored to Christendom. It was a notable achievement. The crusade of Frederick has been relegated to the obscurity of a minor crusade by historians because it was enlivened by no clash of arms nor signalized by martial victories or great disasters. Yet it achieved more than any crusade since the first which had captured Jerusalem in 1099. The second crusade, led by the Emperor Conrad III and Louis VII of France, had striven vainly in the middle of the twelfth century to rescue the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem from the destruction with which it was threatened. In 1187, the city had fallen again into the hands of the Saracens, led by the redoubtable Saladin. The great Barbarossa, Philip Augustus of France, and Richard of England had hastened to repel the invaders. Barbarossa had perished miserably by the way, Philip returned to France rather than suffer the humiliation of being eclipsed by the English monarch. Richard himself, for all his gallantry and doughty deeds, failed to recover the holy city and only succeeded in securing a short-lived toleration for the Christians. The Fourth Crusade had not even set foot in Palestine. In 1221, the legate Pelagius had led the Fifth Crusade to an ignominious truce on the banks of the Nile. It remained for Frederick II, cursed by the Church, thwarted and hindered at every turn by its partisans, with a small army rent by dissensions, to obtain by treaty that which the mightiest monarchs of Europe, blessed and aided by the Pope, and with far superior armaments under their leadership, had failed to rest by the power of the sword. End of section 11